everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker, and uh, this is episode 191, which means we're coming up on 200. Uh, I specced it out, looked at the calendar, and it looks like that's going to end up being the uh, the Monday right before New Year's. So I've already got a big name guest uh, on the hook, hopefully for that. I don't want to promise anything yet until it's for sure. Uh, but I'm going to be doing something special for that. I'm not sure what will be the bicentennial podcast, basically. And last time I had a big book giveaway, um, some signed books and some other things from other authors, not just me. And I'm thinking about what we're going to do this time around. I'm still kind of kicking some ideas around. So uh, I've got a couple things I'd like to get some feedback on, though. So uh, I'll go back to that at the end of the uh, after the interview. I'll, I'll give you that information and uh, tell you what kind of things I'm looking for feedback on. So today is part two of our interview with Jason Kelly and Lindsay Oliver from the EFF and our really interesting discussion about student surveillance apps, proctoring apps that are really super creepy, honestly. And today we, we kind of talk a little bit more about what's going on. We talk a little bit about how this relates to what's going on for those of us working from home and some of our employers who are actually implementing some of the, you know, the exact same surveillance measures to try to keep an eye on what we're doing when they can't see us. And we'll get a little bit philosophical about, you know, how we should be doing this and what the future holds. So an exciting end to a wonderful interview. But before we get into that, um, uh, because I've actually got, I've got a lot of interviews now uh, <laughs> coming down the bike. And uh, so many, in fact, that I'm thinking I might have to merge the news and the, and the interviews into one show a little bit. Uh, we'll see how that goes. I'm definitely going to be skipping the next news show. Normally, I kind of do like a two-part interview and then a news, then another two-part interview. Uh, but I've already got another interview in the can uh, with John Graham Cumming for the CTO of Cloudflare. Always fun to have him on. He's our reigning champion. He's been on the show five times now. And they've got uh, Cloudflare's got some really interesting new uh, products and services they're putting out uh, for free for the benefit of us all. And we'll talk about that. But we also talk a little bit about the upcoming election, and so I kind of want to sneak at least the first part of that in before the election actually happens. So, uh, and speaking of elections, uh, I'm going to have some news and some info for you about voting. Uh, again, that'll be after the second part of the interview. I'll save that for the end. And I've, I will go through a few news items as well. Uh, I'll just tell you right off the bat, though, if, you, if you're a Google Chrome user or if you're a Microsoft Windows user, both of them have released some really super critical fixes um, lately. So if you have not updated Google Chrome or Microsoft Windows, do that immediately. And then I've got another few articles. There was a really interesting study done about how police are breaking into our, our, our iPhones and Android phones. And so I'll talk a little bit about that. Well, of course, the one of the big news items was that the Justice Department, the DOJ in the United States, uh, has sued Google, uh, alleging multiple violations of antitrust law. I'll talk a little bit about that. And uh, a good security story about Microsoft uh, and some other people, but uh, really working to stamp out one of the nastiest botnets out there. Also, it's still barely National Cybersecurity Awareness Month, so I've got a few more tips for you uh, along that line as well. So lots to get to today. Uh, let's get right to it, though. Let's get back to the second half of our interview with Lindsay Oliver and Jason Kelly. One of the other things I was, as I was reading about these things, part of the sales pitch for some of these services that they give is, you know, it keeps everybody in a level playing field. Like we're, we're, watering, we're monitoring everybody, but that makes sure that everyone's, you know, being held to the same strict rules. But as we kind of alluded to earlier, there's... I mean, there are definitely demographic biases in this, either by income or, or race uh, or even physical or mental conditions. I mean, we, if people who are already stressed out about taking tests, I mean, this is just going to make it worse. And, it, you know, talk to us a little bit about what, what you've noticed with that so far. 
Absolutely. So this is this is my one of my biggest bones to pick. These systems and these platforms absolutely reinforce systemic injustice at so many different intersections. One example, not everyone has a quiet private space mm-hmm. that they have control over. And penalizing students for their living environment or other factors that they can't control is re- both ridiculous and cruel. And as Jason mentioned earlier, uh, access to actual real high-speed internet is a a serious issue, not only for low-income students who may not have access to, you know, either high-speed or any internet Mm. at all at home, but also uh, a lot of rural students where the infrastructure for broadband has not been built out yet. Um, And many are relying on one of two different kinds of, of connectivity. One, satellite, and two, point-to-point wireless. Satellite is pretty slow. Yeah, It's better on the download speed than it is on the upload speed. And point-to-point wireless systems, I believe satellite also suffers from this issue as well. Inclement weather will make it more, mm, de- like yeah. you, you won't be able to connect. Yeah. The, the other issue that I, I sort of touched on is that um, the download speeds can be okay, but because proctoring requires remote proctoring requires that you be sending a continuous stream mm-hmm. of, you know, you taking the exam back to the uh, the proctor. If you have an interruption, you know, you might lose connectivity. Mm-hmm. And any dip in connectivity could result in a test being invalidated by either kicking the student off of the platform and thus like logging them out or uh, if it doesn't log you out, but there is a dip and the proctor can't see you, it could be flagged as a suspicious activity yeah. indicative of academic dishonesty. Right. And I, I, I haven't even mentioned yet the issues on the disability front. They mm. are myriad. Mm. Uh, and these systems, they're they're not set up to accommodate the variety of needs students may have, uh, such as you know needing to go to the bathroom in the middle mm. of a test, uh, managing chronic pain. Maybe you can't sit in one position for yeah, right. an hour for and sure, a half. Yeah. I mean, I can't. I've moved around like three times just in this conversation. <laughs> right. And, you know, neuroatypical students aren't considered either. These systems do not account for the breadth and depth of human behavior and all of the coping mechanisms that we learn to help us get through the day and that neurotypical students may display as they take their tests. Some may talk to themselves. Mm. Um, some may stim to regulate their nervous systems. Some may need to, you know, work problems out on paper. Some might have a hard time looking directly at the screen the whole time. It is a nightmarish scenario if you are in any way disabled or, you know, don't have access to all of the things your richer or more geographically advantaged peers may have. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah, and you brought up several things I didn't even think about either. Wow. Um, Well, here's another one. I hate hate that I even have to ask this question, but I know this is probably an issue, and that is... I mean, I've read that some, you know, undocumented students are afraid of being outed by these systems, right? I mean, they're taking video of these guys. They're doing all sorts of uh, intrusive data gathering and and ID. Do we actually know, though? Do we actually know that – is there any evidence that ICE or DHS has actually done anything with these these platforms? Like, as you mentioned before, because it's so new and because it rolled out – it has rolled out so quickly, uh, we don't have any evidence of it right now. But – Considering the horrifying things that are already happening in the United mm-hmm. States right now, I do not think we would be surprised. And I think those students who are those undocumented students who are scared have every you know reason to be, and no one should tell them they're being paranoid. Yeah, it is. It is absolutely a, a concern. 
So we've been talking a lot about proctored tests, but another thing, obviously, that goes hand in hand with this during the pandemic is a lot of these universities are also forcing these students to put location tracking apps on their phones. Some of that's for attendance. Uh, they're using, I know there's, they're doing some of that for attendance, which is bad enough, but, you know, they're trying to also do it for contact tracing. And while, you know, Apple and Google have tried to come up with these sort of privacy preserving ways of doing it, a lot of these other apps are not, are not doing that. Um, what, what's going on in terms of that right now? Uh, that's a good question. These are two issues that kind of do go hand in hand. And um, EFF's position on this is really clear. We don't believe that universities should be mandating any kind of COVID tracking apps. Uh, we think the schools need to remove those mandates from any student agreements and that they should frankly pledge not to mandate any installation of technology like this. Uh, a lot of these apps are untested, they're unproven, mm -hmm. and they rely on some of those assumptions that Lindsay was talking about, about the kind of devices that students have. We actually like to refer to, if, if we discuss contact tracing, we are specifically referring to that manual level of contact tracing that we've seen from health departments and health professionals for many, many decades. Right, where school. they Yeah, exactly. That's contact tracing. These supposed contact tracing apps aren't necessarily that. A lot of them are really just surveillance apps. And that doesn't mean that they can't have an impact on giving people important data about their potential uh, risks that they could have, you know, run into someone or been near someone. But the vast majority of them are untested. And we think that if a university does identify a technology that they want the students to use, it's their responsibility to present it to the students and demonstrate that it's effective and that it respects their privacy. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Um, so we touched on this a little bit earlier too, but it, it's, it, you know, this whole thing about proctoring people with trying to do a closed book based test remotely. It's, it's bothered me anyway, but now that we're doing it in the COVID with all these, you know, horribly invasive uh, proctoring technologies, I mean, it's just gotten worse. It, you know, life, the thing that bothered me about it is life is never closed book, right? I mean, at my day to day job, my boss doesn't come to me and says, I want you to do this, but you can't look anything up while you do it. Well said. And I want you to do it. <laughs> I want you to do it completely by yourself and don't ask anybody for help. Come back to me when you're done. I mean, that, that's not life, right? Uh, so I, I would think that this would be the perfect opportunity to kind of shatter some of those those myths and, and, and shift the paradigms. Do we, and this is probably out of your bailiwick, but do we have any understanding or maybe because of this, have people started, you know, talking about studies where they're talking about the real effectiveness of, you know, closed book based testing versus open book in terms of like, you know, actual learning outcomes? Well, you're in luck. I'm a former high school teacher. Oh, all right. <laughs> and I'm going to, to put on my former teacher hat on top of my EFF hat <laughs> to say that testing is absolutely useless. Mm. Uh, all it does is show how well you can take a test. Mm -hmm. It is not indicative of mastery of a subject. And uh, it's not an area that EFF works in. But, you know, this is this is one of those scenarios where I think where we can comment the best is in one of our, you know, one of our core tenets is innovation. Um, and this is a golden opportunity within a terrible time to actually innovate yeah. and create an education system that works better for all students. And clinging to these, you know, factory produced, uh, like, just horrible production line, yeah. like educational models is not helpful at all and is actively doing harm, uh, we could be creating educational systems that actually 
use technology to help people learn better and right. find new ways and strategies to to learn. Uh, and instead, we've got you know we've got proctoring applications that are requiring students to aim a camera at their crotch to make sure that they don't have notes hidden between their legs, which is disgusting. Mm. Like. The, there's there's the innovation way and that there's the horrible Orwellian like no we can do better come on yeah right so okay so you're a teacher so maybe you know other teachers do we have any feedback what like what do all the teachers and professors think about this are they are they on board with this or are they just doing it because they're their you know institutions are telling them they must it's sort of I mean, it varies a lot, but the three sort of, I think it's three, we'll see how many numbers I get to, um, <laughs> the, the three sort of responses that I've seen from all the teachers that I know, um, and, and the couple of um, teachers associations I've spoken to in the past few months, uh, the first response I get is exhausted and what are you talking about, Because which I can extremely relate to, mm -hmm. because everything is moving so quickly. And in some cases, a lot of teachers didn't know whether they were going to be going back to in-person schooling mm. until a couple days beforehand. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then they're like, okay, you're online. Here's the proctoring thing. And they're just, they're just trying to get through the day. So that's, that's sort of the first one. The second one is furious, but not sure what they can do. Mm. And the ones that I've spoken to who have who are part of teachers unions and have spoke and have spoken to their union representatives about it, because it, it doesn't just violate a student's um, in a lot of cases, a lot of the surveillance stuff that's being rolled out in schools on top of proctoring also violates the uh, the privacy of the teachers as well. So not only are they dealing with things like Go Guardian and Bark and Gaggle, which can monitor the teachers in some ways as well. Mm -hmm. They've got this proctoring uh, application that they're using not that often. And they've just got so much that they're looking at. They're like, this all looks terrible, but I don't know exactly what I can do. And my unions are already dealing with, you know, figuring out working conditions in a remote oh, yeah. environment. Right. It, the system is so strained. And the I did get to number three. The third <laughs> one, the third one is I quit. Um, I have yeah. so many former teacher friends who have just left they're they're going to other other professions um or they're moving to schools that you know don't have these orwellian yeah. nightmare scenarios or um in in the case of like two or three they're switching to homeschooling pods which is hmm. further entrenching just like an educational environment that is bereft of teachers mm. especially in public school scenarios yeah, well, it turns out my mother is an, as a teacher, an ex a high school teacher, and as well as some of my my aunts. So I've got a lot of teaching in my family as well. And and she's been out of the game for a while, but and she looks at what's going on now and talks to some of the teacher friends that are still there. And before this, she was like, uh, I would not want to be teaching right now. And I, you know, this has got to be the last straw for for a lot of those teachers that must be feeling that. Yeah. So are, you know. Will the invisible hand of the market address this at all? Are there any universities who are seeing opportunity here to come out and say, hey, we're, we're the ones that are not tracking you. Come to our school. They could. You know, it's it's hard to say what the invisible hand of the market will do to that's positive in these <laughs> scenarios. But, you know, think of it this way. Students have successfully petitioned to stop these apps from being made mandatory. That could signal to other students that this is something to look for, out for in a school. You know, if you've seen that 
your school uh, that you're interested in applying to doesn't use these apps, especially if you're a high school student that's currently experiencing this sort of invasive monitoring, I can imagine you being very likely to want to find a school that isn't doing that when you go to college. So I think that's the case. And then I also can imagine universities promoting the fact that they hire their own proctors. Um, Again, I mentioned that the proctors that are hired, no no offense to them, but I would rather be proctored by a TA Mm -hmm. uh, than by a customer service rep, right? right? And that's actually what happened at the University of London. You know, they petitioned against the use of proctor track and the university, instead of using third-party proctoring software, brought their proctoring in-house. So I do think that there is a chance that universities and schools, as much as you can decide where you want to go to school in either scenario, could stand out by limiting this kind of usage. But it, right now, everything is moving so fast, as Lindsay mentioned, yeah. that you know a lot of people... Let's let's all hope that this uh, pandemic ends quickly, soon, fingers crossed. But a lot of students were already deciding where they were going to go to college a year or two years before. So it's hard to know what will happen based on that. And again, hopefully by the time the pandemic is uh, over, the invisible hand of the market will have wiped the proctoring apps off the face of the earth. But until then... Uh, we'll just have to wait and see if students and universities can promote can promote non-surveillance as a benefit of being at the school. Right. We've talked a lot about what universities shouldn't be doing. We <laughs> we see them doing a lot of it. And, you know, and, and Lindsay, you've kind of hinted at things that we should be doing differently anyway before this even happened. But does EFF have any – are they – coming out with proposals? Do, is it clear? I mean, we know what we shouldn't be doing, but is it is it clear based on what's going on now how, how we should be doing this? Is it how What should we be doing to handle remote learning during a pandemic? Well, we've written a few things about student choice, particularly related to um, sort of COVID app mandates. Um, and that is if you are going to roll out a piece of software or an app or whatever, you need to give students the choice and you need to give them control over their own devices. And if you want them to use something, you need to show them that you're actually going to protect their privacy and demonstrate the security of what you are using. Now, if we're talking about proctoring specifically, I don't think there is any scenario in which the this like current version of proctoring applications would ever be acceptable to me. Mm. Uh, I've had, you know, people have asked me like, which one is the, like is acceptable, like none of them, none of these are okay ever and no one should convince you otherwise. So if, if you need to do assessments, there are alternatives. You could do open book testing, Mm -hmm. you could do portfolios, you could do project-based learning. Like there, there's a whole suite of other things that don't involve like, an Orwellian, this is my word of the day, uh, <laughs> Sadly, a telescreen yes. scantron. Yeah. There's other options. This doesn't have to be it. You don't have to compromise students' privacy to take tests. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, it, yeah, I completely agree. And of course, this is this is happening with those of us working from home as well, right? I mean, just to take a little bit of a, uh, a sidetrack, the same kind of, pro- you know, that's not proctoring, but the same kind of monitoring, you know, that it's called bossware, right? Where the, where the employers 
are now doing the same kind of things with their employees. <laughs> you know, they're not luckily mine wasn't, um, isn't, uh, I say wasn't cause I'm about to retire, <laughs> but, uh, congratulations. Yeah, thank, yeah. thank you. You know, but they, certainly some employers are and right. I mean, same employers that like where the managers like to see butts in seats, right? They don't think you're working if, you, if they can't watch you work. And so this is now extended to home. So what do we know? What do you guys know about what's going on in that realm? Is it, is it having the same kind of impacts? Is it is it affecting employee morale and productivity? You know, I would think negatively, but, you know, do we have any data? <laughs> um, I'm not sure that we have data directly, but, you know, you said it, it's a it's a side conversation. And I, I really don't think that it is. I mean, both these softwares, the proctoring software and Bossware or employee monitoring software, they have a lot of similarities. Mm-hmm. Both are tracking your app and website usage. Both are limiting access to websites or to apps that could be, let's say, deemed unproductive or could offer you some advantage in test taking. And as you mentioned, some some of the sites that could be deemed unproductive in work and therefore are blacklisted could actually help you do your work, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of these issues are the same. And Bossware has access to the camera. It takes snap- snapshots of your screen. Ultimately, these two products are, I think, side like two sides of the same coin. Yep. They're the idea the people that use them have this idea that there's some sort of platonic ideal of how work should be done or how a test yeah. should be taken and that you can use an algorithm to determine if someone isn't following that ideal. But that mindset kind of ignores how inspiration and intelligence actually work. I, I personally can, can speak from experience uh, from having worked at a job that monitored my supposed productivity. These tools really suck the independence out of a yeah, person. Yeah. They reduce them to like a literal number. In, in in the case of proctoring, that number is a suspicion score. That's the term that one of the apps uses. Ew. And in the case of Bossware, that number is a productivity score. And the the kind of real fear that that this remote work surveillance ecosystem puts in me is that if proctoring apps become widespread and students become conditioned to AI surveillance during school hours, it it definitely conditions people to being surveilled during their work hours as well. So it's 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 definitely a um, a connected issue. Yeah. And to answer your question, you know, again from my experience, I got a different job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so much like the teachers, you know, I, I don't think people are motivated by uh, scores as much as they are by having independence and being able to do their jobs well. Well, I, I don't know if I feel lucky being a software engineer. I've worked at many companies, big and small, and I, I don't know if it's just something about software culture, but it seems like at least most places I've worked has been much more just results oriented. I mean, you're either getting your stuff done or you're not. And I, I don't, as long as you're, you know, have decent output and get your stuff done, it, they don't care when you work. They don't care how you do it. I mean, to the point yeah. where if I could get 40 hours worth of work done in 10 hours, okay. <laughs> you know, the, you know, that, 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 that's okay. Generally. Um, and they and they luckily they haven't monitored uh, us, thank goodness. But I, I'm certainly there are other businesses that are that are not so liberal. Yeah, and I I, I just I would mention that the place I I was working at was a software company, mm. and it was a liberal place at the beginning. When times are good, you're not as worried about squeezing productivity out of workers, perhaps. But as as times might get bad, which they you know do, mm. it's a, it becomes a lot easier for managers to think well. What's the easiest way to determine who shouldn't be here? Forget about results. Who's? Let's say someone like you can work 10 hours and get 40 hours of work done. Why aren't you working 40 hours? <laughs> and I'd say it's an unfortunate uh, potential end result hmm. of, um, 
of the, the fact that this software makes it supposedly easy to track who's getting what done. Okay, so as we wrap up here, um, and Lindsay, I'm going to ask you to put on a third hat, and that is your Karnak the Magnificent hat. <laughs> I, I love that Johnny Car Carson character. Um, I've totally dated myself. But um, what what's going to happen in the coming months? Is this going to get worse? Is it going to get better? Is it just going to get different? Um, and, of course, the big one that we're all asking is, when this is all over, do we go back to what it was? I mean, is there any going back to that? Oh, I got the fun question. <laughs> Okay, um, the state of the world, and please imagine that I am gesturing wildly and also <laughs> vaguely at, you know, everything. Okay. Um, it has opened up a whole new world for remote learning, but it's also exposed students and anyone who shares space with them to something akin to the, the telescreen monitoring mm. from 1984. Uh, remote student surveillance is a window into the home life of every student subjected to these systems and every person who shares space with them. I'm also concerned that as this becomes more entrenched and creeps further into the lower grade levels, which I think it will, and younger age groups, we're going to be, uh, as Jason said, normalizing surveillance for an entire generation. Mm, yeah. And you know, how does that affect the way that they think about privacy beyond their school years? Yeah, How no, does yeah. that set them up not only for work, but for romantic relationships? Hmm. How does that prime them for abuse? Uh, and if the people teaching them how to be in the world are spying on them, hmm. yeah. then it must be okay for an intimate partner to spy on them, for hmm. their parents to spy on them, for the government to spy on them. Yeah, it, It's chilling, and I don't just mean scary, when people spy on you, you hide who you are yeah. and you censor your expression right when you're supposed to be learning and making mistakes and being creative, all the things that education is supposed to be about. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's, it's notoriously difficult to roll back, uh, even when there is massive public outcry uh, against and support for curtailing it. And so I've sort of, I've, I've answered this question backwards. <laughs> so in terms of, of timeline, I think as midterms roll around this year, which should be, you know, late October, mid-November, I think we're going to see an additional huge wave of student activism mm. and a lot more media attention, but also a whole lot of damage to students who are vulnerable. I'm thinking back to your question about undocumented students. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of trans students being outed. I'm thinking of, you know, everyone who could be harmed. And I don't think this is going to go away. We're not going to be going back to, you know, air quotes, normal pre-pandemic <laughs> life yeah. for a very, very long time, if ever. Uh, and it, it's a sad thing to have to say, but this is this is going to be a hard fight um, because the conditions that have opened the door to this mass uh, remote student surveillance ecosystem are going to be present for a long time. And thus will have to be it's, it's not like a, a sharp shock to the system where you can do, you know, immediate recovery after the damage happens. This is going to be an ongoing chronic thing we're going to have to fight against. So. All this to say, it's time to fight and and get in it for the long haul. Yeah, I agree. It, 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 as you were saying that, I, uh, I was visioning in my head, this is almost like a, 
like a nine a nine eleven kind of moment where, you know, be, in response to this you know tragedy or this massive negative event, people you know kind of willingly give up and what they think is the short term for their benefit, you know, privacy, uh, it probably never to get it back, at least never the way it was. And, you know, it's such a slippery slope and, you know, it's, I mean, think of all the things we did for nine 11 that we were supposedly temporary <laughs> and it's been yeah. what, yeah. you know, almost 20 years now. And a lot of these things are, are still in place. So, yeah, we think about that a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I know you do. And I'm glad you do. Uh, yeah. But you do more than think you actually get stuff done, which is fantastic. So let's wrap up on that note. What you know? What advice do you have our listeners? Obviously, we want to say donate to the EFF because you guys are already out there fighting for uh, fighting for our rights. And uh, so we appreciate that. Petitions, we've talked about those. Um, any other suggestions, any other maybe resources that you have at the EFF or even uh, outside the EFF that people might want to refer to uh, for help here? Yeah. Um, well, as always, um, students can go to our surveillance self-defense guides. They're really helpful. That's ssd.eff.org because they're they're not just about proctoring, although, you know, we're getting we're, we're focusing on student privacy there now, but they've got privacy and security advice for a lot of different scenarios. Mm-hmm. And this surveillance is all connected in a lot of different ways. And it's not going away, as Lindsay said. So I think students are going to need to organize their schools against this proctoring and parents are going to need to organize. If you're an alum, I think it's a good idea to try to contact your school and say, I, I didn't go to school so that, you know, I didn't pay tuition so that you could sp- spy on students, you know, five years after or 10 years after I graduated. Uh, I'm going to refuse to, you know, donate to you until you agree not to do this. So you do have some ability to um, to push back. And when it comes to the government uh, and, and, and state or federal legislation, you know, we don't have anything right now that's out there. But I'm sure when we do, you will be able to contact your legislator and say, you know, yes, this bill is good or no, this bill is not good. So yeah, just continue to be vigilant. And uh, I think Lindsay has uh, yet another set of advice for folks. <laughs> So uh, the the student privacy guide that uh, that Jason mentioned, it has a lot of practical advice, not only for minimizing the data exposure and risk in a lot of these student surveillance ecosystems and scenarios, but also a lot of advocacy strategies Mm. for fighting back in your local schools and universities um, and for other forms of student surveillance as well. Uh, That guide goes through, you know, what data can be tracked, how they're tracking it, what the risk to you is how you can fight back and how you can, you know, do privacy as a team sport. And you can, as Jason said, go to that guide by going to ssd.eff.org, searching for privacy for students. I would also check out the hundreds of other petitions, I think a lot of which are on change.org, that students have created to fight back Mm. against proctoring, some of which we've compiled on our blog under the student privacy issue page. You know, get teachers and administrators and your IT department to advocate for you if you are, you know, a K through 12 student, if you are at a university, gather people around you, find allies, fight back, call your representatives, call your senators, Mm. raise hell. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, a final message that I would like to send to any students out there who are feeling lost or powerless, you are absolutely not alone. uh, And you're right. This is spying and it's not okay. And there are people out there fighting for your rights and privacy, and you absolutely have the power to make change happen. Well said. Uh, Lindsay, Jason, thank you again so much for coming on. This was everything I was hoping it would be, and it's so important right now. And 
uh, really glad to have you guys out there uh, fighting for us. Thank you, Carrie. Really great to talk to you. Thanks so much for having us. Big, big thanks to Lindsay and Jason for coming on the show. We actually it took some doing to get all that together. We we had some logistical issues or whatever, but we finally got that together. I'm so glad we did. It was such an important discussion these days. And, you know, it's it's not like this is all set in stone, right? I mean, we've got, we've kind of, this first semester has kind of been on a trial as far as I'm concerned. There's a whole second semester coming up and we could do things differently. And I think we should. So, you know, depending on what university you're at or even what, you know, K through 12 perhaps, um, or if you're working from home, all these kind of things apply and we're, you know, we're still learning the ropes. We're still trying things out and, you know, we've kind of already seen what works and what doesn't and what shouldn't be. And, uh, you know, now's the time. Um, don't accept that whatever is going on right now is the way it has to be, you know, find some ways to push back, find some ways to work with other people and, uh, in your, in your same situation and, you know, come up with some petitions or some other group action that can be a lot more powerful a lot sometimes than just a single voice. And of course, the, the EFF is there to help you. If you want to, check out their Electronic Frontier Alliance, which is their local grassroots program. You can start your own group. Uh, you could find a local group that's already in existence, perhaps. Join up with them and collaborate with them. Or if you really want to, uh, start your own group. And the EFA is there to help you. And of course, uh, you know, I'll say it as I always do. If you really want to help, donate some money to these guys. Um, the Electronic Frontier Foundation is doing wonderful, wonderful work on all of our behalves. Whether you give them money or not. Um, but that is their, their nonprofit. And so they survive by those of us giving them money. And so, uh, if, if you like what they're doing, if you want them to be out there and keep fighting the good fight, send them a little bit of money. Doesn't have to be a lot. Just go to EFF.org and look for the big donate button. Okay. So, um, the, the United States election is right around the corner. It seems like it's been coming for so long in this country. We're just our campaign seasons are ridiculously long, but it's finally almost here. By the time you hear this, it will just be eight days away. So early voting is wrapping up. The actual election day, Tuesday, November 3rd, is right around the corner. And so I wanted to, I wanted to say a few things. So obviously vote. Um, this is a, this is one of, certainly I know it sounds hyperbolic and I know that maybe in past years they've said this before, but truly, truly, this is one of the most important elections in our lifetime. And it's important that we not stand on the sidelines. You've got, no matter how you're going to vote, vote. Get out there and register your vote. Not just for the top tickets, not just for the federal races, but all the way down the ballot. There are some uh, great websites out there you can find that have nonpartisan comparison guides of the various candidates to help you kind of figure out. Because, you know, who's going to know who the, you know, all the school commissioners are or the comptrollers and some of these other kind of strange down ballot things, but they are important. So you can, there exists research you could do on these things. Just look for like a voting guide and maybe put in your county or your state and do some searches on that. And you should come up with some interesting, um, some interesting options there. Oftentimes a local independent newspaper will have it like in Raleigh, it's the Indie Week. Uh, News and Observer has one too, though I think you have to be a subscriber to get it, which just seems wrong to me. So, so anyway, check your local newspaper, see if they've got a voting guide. Maybe go to the League of Women Voters. Sometimes they have information there as well. But uh, here are a couple sites that you might want to check out for sure. One is uh, an easy one to remember. It's vote.org. Uh, they've got all sorts of tools that you need to make sure you're registered, uh, find your polling place, find out how early voting works and where the early voting sites are, how to do mail-in and absentee ballots, how to request your ballot. It's still not too late to get those in some states. 
lots of great information, so definitely check that out. Uh, Common Cause is another really good nonpartisan group uh, that that has some voting information there as well. You can check out commoncause.org. But it's there's this year in particular. There's lots of great information out there. So do a little poking around if you're if you're really not sure who some of those down ballot people are. Um, you can find out, and it's really not that hard. Now there's some there's some caveats with this election, and I've talked about these a little bit before, but it doesn't doesn't hurt to say them again. First, this is going to be a different kind of election. This is not going to be like our past presidential elections. We're probably not going to know the winner that night, Tuesday night, and that's okay. Uh, be prepared for that. Be, it may take days uh, for us to get all the counts in because there are so many mail-in ballots. There was so much early voting. A lot of these states don't allow their voting precincts or whatever to count those votes, to start counting those votes until either the day of the election, in some cases not even until the polls are closed. So it's going to take a while. Just be prepared for that. That doesn't mean anything nefarious is going on. That doesn't mean it's rigged. Does, and none of that. It, it, this is normal. In fact, it's never actually for sure until the electors come together in December and, and cast their votes. What we've been getting for in the years past is the results from the, the newspapers and TV stations and news networks that are projecting the winner. Uh, they're not they're, they can't officially say what's what, but I mean, based on exit polling and uh, other polling that they've, the, the various, you know, voting polls that are done ahead of time, they kind of take all that data and put it together. And, and a lot of them feel comfortable enough uh, to make projections, predictions basically uh, on the night of, but don't expect that this year, that <laughs> there's going to be probably a lot of swing states that we're not going to know about right away. Just be prepared for that. Now, just because you don't live in a swing state does not mean you should not vote. You should absolutely get out there and vote. One more thing I'll mention, you've probably seen some stories already uh, about how people in Florida, Florida and California, I think we're getting these threatening emails by the Proud Boys, supposedly. Uh, turns out that was not, probably not the case. But regardless, it doesn't matter because it looks like it's a fake campaign anyway, probably Russia or Iran. And they make it look real because these emails that have gone out, you know, mention you by your full name. They have your address. They have the fact that you're registered Democrat or Republican. And these emails are basically we're threatening them to vote. I think in this case it was to vote for Trump or else. And they threatened, I don't know if it was bodily harm or whatever, but, um, and it was creepy, right? Because they had your full name and address. Well, you got to realize that all the information is, is public knowledge. You can, if you go to your state's Secretary of State or or the election board, whoever, whatever your website is for your particular state, you can look yourself up right there and find out when you voted, uh, not how you voted, but when you voted, whether you voted, how you were registered when you voted, how you're currently registered. Uh, you can go to property. You can then go to property addresses or property tax addresses to get your address. It's not that hard to piece this together these days. And that's basically what these guys did. Um, and all of these campaigns, there, there will be others in the next couple of weeks. I guarantee it. You're going to hear about it. And it's all FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. It's all just trying to sow chaos. Uh, do not let that keep you from voting. Don't let that discourage you. It's not rigged. It's not hacked. Um, it's actually trivial to get some of that information and hack someone's email account and send out fake emails. That's trivial. Actually, altering election results is very difficult in our country, partially because we've got some security, but also because we've got such a heterogeneous set of voting systems across the country, even within a state. You know, it's not like there's one thing that if you learned how to hack, you could hack them all. You've got a, there's dozens of different versions of these voting, this voting software and election tabulation software and, and so on. It's, it's really not that easy to do. And when you hear about voting fraud, it's really minimal. Uh, there may be some more this year because people are trying to make a point and maybe 
trying to commit fraud to make this more of an issue. But study after study after study has shown that in reality, the, the, the amount of voting fraud out there is fractions of a percent, tiny fractions of a percent. And that's because it's really hard to throw an election with just onesie twosie votes. I mean, even if I wanted to go vote twice, or if I wanted to try to vote for somebody who recently died or whatever, that's that's just one vote. I mean, it, it's, you can't really throw an election with that. And it's a felony. You know, I'm risking serious jail time to try to get one more vote. It's just, in reality, it just doesn't happen. Not saying it can't happen. I'm just saying that, you know, most of the stuff that you hear about in the news is really minuscule. And the stuff we really have to worry about where you know, reporting, reporting the data or in states where there is no paper trail, uh, where all the votes are only stored on a computer. That's a problem. We need to fix that. Those, those we'll need to worry about. Um, but we have definitely stepped up our game this year, uh, in terms of security and hopefully all will go well, fingers crossed, but regardless, do not let that dissuade you from voting, get out there and vote. All right, that's enough of that. Let's move on to some news real quick. Uh, I've got a few stories I want to cover because we're not going to do a news show next week. We're going to jump right into another interview with John Graham Cumming. So I didn't want this to go another three weeks without you hearing about him. So um, I picked a few interesting stories here. The first one is, you may have seen this on the news, uh, there's a some sort of a research agency or something called Upturn who did a study with a lot of Freedom of Information Act requests from several different law enforcement agencies around the country and summed up some really interesting data that, uh, as far as they're concerned, has not been published before. We've talked about it uh, off and on, but this is pretty sobering. So uh, let me just read from, this is directly from their study. If you go to upturn.org and look under the reports for 2020, there's one called Mass Extraction. You could read the whole report if you want. I'm just going to kind of read the intro or the summary. Uh, and it goes like this, it says, Every day, law enforcement agencies across the country search thousands of cell phones, typically incident to arrest. To search phones, law enforcement agencies use Mobile Device Forensic Tools, or MDFTs, a powerful technology that allows police to extract a full copy of data from a cell phone. All emails, texts, photos, location, app data, and more, which can then be programmatically searched. As one expert puts it, with the amount of sensitive information stored on smartphones today, the tools provide a quote-unquote window into the soul. This report, and this is their report that you can go read in full if you'd like, this report documents the widespread adoption of MDFTs by law enforcement in the United States. Based on 110 public records requests to state and local law enforcement agencies across the country, our research documents more than 2,000 agencies that have purchased these tools in all 50 states and the District of Columbia. We found that state and local law enforcement agencies have performed hundreds of thousands of cell phone extractions since 2015, often without a warrant. To our knowledge, this is the first time that such records have been widely disclosed. Every American is at risk of having their phone forensically searched by law enforcement. Law enforcement uses these tools to investigate not only cases involving major harm, but also for graffiti, shoplifting, marijuana possession, prostitution, vandalism, car crashes, parole violations, petty theft, public intoxication, and a full gamut of drug-related offenses. Given how routine these searches are today, together with racist policing policies and practices, it's more than likely that these technologies disparately affect and are used against communities of color. The emergence of these tools represents a dangerous expansion in law enforcement's investigatory powers. In 2011, only 35% of Americans owned a smartphone. Today, it's at least 81% of Americans. Moreover, many Americans, especially people of color and people of, with lower incomes, rely solely on their cell phones to connect to the Internet. For law enforcement, quote, 
mobile phones remain the most frequently used and most important digital source for investigation, unquote. We believe that MDFTs, these are the tools that crack the cell phones, are simply too powerful in the hands of law enforcement and should not be used. But recognizing that MDFTs are already in widespread use across the country, we offer a set of preliminary recommendations that we believe can, in the short term, help reduce the use of MDFTs. These include, and they have five bullets here, one, banning the use of consent searches of mobile devices. Uh, Now, I'm thinking what that means is the cop says, hey, unlock your phone, can I search it? And a lot of people feel very intimidated and feel that they have to do that. And I'm sure that at the border and other places there, they can be very, very convincing. Um, So I think what they're basically saying there is to just ban that practice, like that you can't do it that way. You can't do it without a warrant. Uh, Point two, abolishing the plain view exception for digital searches. And that's that's the classic, that cop pulls you over and he's flashlight in your car and he thinks he sees a joint in the backseat or you know, whatever, and and that gives him probable cause to search your entire vehicle. Uh, Apparently, there's an analog of that, (laughs) no pun intended, for digital searches. Uh, Three, requiring easy-to-understand audit logs, and I'm not sure what that means. I'd have to read the article. Um, Hopefully, what that means is all of the uses of these devices uh, will have kind of a paper trail, probably a digital paper trail, but some sort of a unalterable log that shows how they were and when they were used on which devices. And actually the devices themselves should, I mean, I realize that they're being hacked by these tools, but if there's some sort of logging that can be done on these, on these devices as well, that, that would help as well. Number four, enacting robust data deletion and sealing requirements. So that I'm guessing means if they do pull all the data off your phone, then that data must be deleted in a very timely manner and sealed and protected. While they, while they do have it in their digital custody. And finally, five, requiring clear public logging of law enforcement use. And this, I think, is just a transparency call. They want it, yeah, they, This group actually had to go through a lot of hoops to, to get this information, and they feel that that is not what should be done. They feel it should be, these things should be widely published so that everyone knows what's actually going on. So it sums up, it says, of course, these recommendations are only the first steps in a broader effort to minimize the scope of policing and to confront and reckon with the role of police in the United States. This report seeks to not only better inform the public regarding law enforcement access to mobile phone data, but also to recenter the conversation on how law enforcement's use of these tools entrenches police power and exacerbates racial inequalities in policing. Yeah, and and that's a point that Bruce Schneier's often made is that it, it, it sets up, it takes a power imbalance that already exists. Like cops can arrest you, you can't arrest them, right? They can really mess with you and there's not much you can do. So that's already a power imbalance. And this, this information gathering just really exacerbates that power imbalance. We, they are not transparent, they're opaque. We don't know what they're doing. We don't know what data they have. We don't often know what their policies are and what, uh, but they have access to everything we have. Uh, that makes it rather difficult for you to fight back and fight for your rights. Okay, uh, next up. Uh, the United States DOJ Department of Justice has just sued Google for multiple violations of federal antitrust law. Um, this is a snippet from an article from the Washington Post. Uh, and let me read that and then I'll talk about it. The Justice Department on Tuesday sued Google over allegations that its search and advertising empire violated federal antitrust laws, launching what is likely to be a lengthy, bruising legal fight between Washington and Silicon Valley that could have vast implications for the entire tech industry. 
The federal government's landmark lawsuit caps off a roughly year-long investigation that concluded Google wielded its digital dominance to the detriment of corporate rivals and consumers. The complaint contends that Google relied on a mix of special agreements and other problematic business practices to secure an insurmountable lead in online search, capturing the market for nearly 90% of all queries in the United States. Google gained its quote-unquote grip on distribution, the Justice Department said, by paying billions of dollars to become the default search engine application in web browsers, on smartphones, and across a wide array of other devices and services, including those offered by some of its competitors, such as Apple. And I'll get back to that in a minute. This vast, unparalleled reach allowed Google to enrich itself through lucrative ads, maintain its online foothold, and render it impossible for other search engines to compete, the federal lawsuit alleges. In bringing its case, the Justice Department did not explicitly ask a judge to break apart Google. Instead, it urged the court to consider quote-unquote structural relief, which theoretically could include a requirement that the company sell a portion of its business and cease other practices that the federal regulators see as harmful and unlawful. And this is a quote, I guess, from the, the filing. It says, quote, Absent a court order, Google will continue executing its anti-competitive strategy, crippling the competitive process, reducing consumer choice, and stifling innovation. For the sake of American consumers and advertisers and all companies now reliant on the Internet economy, the time has come to stop Google's anti-competitive conduct and restore competition, unquote. So this is really interesting. Um, frankly, I'm surprised that the DOJ has brought this up. They have let this stuff run rampant for decades now uh, and have allowed, as we've talked about even recently in some of our interviews, a lot of these mergers and acquisitions uh, where big companies like Google and Apple uh, and Facebook, you know, basically buy up or drown out their rivals and set up, you know, basically monopolies and monopsonies, as Cory Doctorow has said. Um, but it is interesting to keep in mind, though, that this may have some other unintended ripple effects. It is true that Google has paid Apple and also Firefox, Mozilla, among other companies, to make them the default search engine for their web browsers, which means that Safari and Firefox, both web browsers who are purportedly putting your privacy first, nevertheless, put Google as the default search engine. Now, it's changeable, but most people don't even think to do that. Um, I've told you many times that you should change to DuckDuckGo, and it's fairly easy to do, but again, it's the tyranny of the, of the default. It's, you know, some most people don't even know you can change it, and even if they do, they're like, yeah, works fine, I like Google. The Washington Post actually did a really interesting article on this, and I'm really hoping that maybe this is going to be what we interviewed Jeff Fowler about, uh, who wrote the article. Uh, he's done some really great work at the Washington Post, and I really hope we can get that together. But again, what this could mean, for, I mean, most, I think, most of Mozilla's revenue at this point comes from that deal with Google. If Google is now prevented from doing this, uh, I mean, you'd think this would be a boon for Firefox, but it's it's actually could be its death knell. So, you know, this whole ecosystem has organically grown and become what it is today. And, you know, trying to rectify it now after the fact is not going to come without some pain. Uh, I'm really glad that they're doing it, but we're really going to have to pay attention to how this works out and hope and hope that this really does end up being good for everybody when it's all said and done. All right, last news article, and then we'll get to the tip or tips in this case of the week. Microsoft has come out strong to try to disable or hobble or even decimate a bot network that's that's been distributing mal malware for a long time now called TrickBot. And they've done it 
sounds like in, in particular trying to uh, before the run up to this election to prevent malware, in particular ransomware, from messing with the election. So uh, let me just read this article from Engadget. There's lots of articles on this. Most of them are really long and uh, go into a lot of detail, but this one is a good summary. So it says, it's not just the U.S. government racing to disrupt the TrickBot botnet ahead of elections. Microsoft has revealed that it and multiple partners, including ESET, Lumen's Black Lotus Labs, NTT, Symantec, and FSISAC, I'm not sure who that is, have taken steps to disrupt TrickBot. The tech giant obtained a court order and used technical action to prevent the botnet from either starting new infections or activating any dormant ransomware. The company's court approval let it disable IP addresses for TrickBot's command and control servers, suspend services to the operators, make server content inaccessible, and block the operator from buying or leasing more servers. On top of this, Microsoft even made copyright claims against TrickBot for reportedly making malicious use of the company's code. That's novel. Microsoft was primarily concerned that TrickBot's operators would use the botnet to disrupt the imminent U.S. election for, uh, through ransomware. Attackers could lock down systems maintaining voter rolls or reporting on election night results, the company said. The disruption could also help thwart attempts to hijack bank accounts and threaten critical institutions using ransomware like Ryuk. That's R-Y-U-K which has been linked to the death of a German hospital patient as well as attacks against cities and even newspapers. I'll come back to that in a second. This doesn't appear to have been coordinated with the U.S. government. Anonymous officials talking to the New York Times claimed that Cyber Command had already started hacking TrickBot servers in late September. Microsoft only discovered this effort while launching its own, the newspaper said. In both cases, the anti-botnet plans were meant to throw off any possible Russian attacks at a critical moment. It's not clear that Russia intended to use TrickBots for a malware campaign, but this theoretically takes the option away with little opportunity for perpetrators to regroup before the vote on November 3rd. Whatever the intent, it's still a significant blow. TrickBot was the primary delivery method for ransomware like Ryuk. Without it, cybercriminals and any state-sponsored actors will have to scramble to find alternatives. While this isn't likely to be a permanent setback, it might give security experts and would-be targets some breathing room. Okay, so Ryuk, is, um, I may have mentioned it before, It's they give funny names to these different types of malware, uh, but it's one of the most popular ransomware flavors out there today and very effective. TrickBot, again, is just, I don't know where these names come from. Uh, it's, it's the name of a particular bad actor who's responsible for a lot of these uh, ransomware attacks. And that mention there of the death of a German hospital patient, I believe what happened there is they... They used the Ryuk ransomware to take over hospital systems, and somebody who was on a device that was computer-operated that was required to work for them to stay alive uh, was all ransomware up and couldn't be used, and that person died. Uh, that's my understanding from what I recall. But these, this ransomware is not just about money. It has real consequences. So anyway, uh, that's a, that was a positive story. It's, it's good to have a positive security story every so often. Uh, so I definitely wanted to throw that into our news this week. All right, real quick, uh, for a tip of the week, this is the last week of National Cybersecurity Awareness Month. That's October. And uh, they have lots of little cool tip sheets uh, uh, and short you know, bullets about things you should be doing to protect yourself. And I picked one that I thought was particularly important. And this is guarding against phishing attacks. Uh, because these are the way a lot of us end up getting affected with, infected with ransomware or get our identities stolen. So let me read this and I'll make some comments along the way. This is from a tip sheet 
from CISA, which is the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. That's a government organization here in the United States. And it says, phishing attacks use email or malicious websites to infect your machine with malware and viruses in order to collect personal and financial information. Cyber criminals attempt to lure users to click on a link or open an attachment that infects their computers, creating vulnerability to attacks. Phishing emails may appear to come from a real financial institution, e-commerce site, government agency, or any other service business or individual. The email may also request personal information such as account numbers, passwords, or social security numbers. When users respond to the information or click on a link, attackers use it to access users' accounts. And this is how they lure you in. The following messages from the Federal Trade Commission's OnGuard Online are examples of what attackers may email or text when phishing for sensitive information. 1. We suspect an unauthorized transaction on your account. To ensure that your account is not compromised, please click the link below and confirm your identity. 2. During our regular verification of accounts, we couldn't verify your information. Please click here to update and verify your information. And I'm sure you've seen things like that before. Just be very careful. No matter how official it looks, it's really, unfortunately, very easy to spoof an email these days. So what are some tips to avoid that? Here are the tips they lay out. They say, 1. Play hard to get with strangers. Links in email and online posts are often the way cybercriminals compromise your computer. If you're unsure who an email is from, even if the details appear accurate, do not respond and do not click on any links or attachments found in that email. Be cautious of generic readings such as hello bank customer, as these are often signs of phishing attempts. If you're concerned about the legitimacy of an email, call the company directly. And obviously not using any number that they give you in this email. Look it up online. 2. Think before you act. Be wary of communications that implore you to act immediately. Many phishing emails attempt to create a sense of urgency, causing the recipient to fear their account or information is in jeopardy. If you receive a suspicious email that appears to be from someone you know, reach out to that person directly on a separate secure platform. In other words, text them, call them, do something else besides email. If the email comes from an organization but still looks fishy, reach out to them via customer service to verify the communication. 3. If people contacting you have key details from your life, your job title, multiple email addresses, full name, and more that you may have published online somewhere, they can attempt a direct spear phishing attack against you. Cybercriminals can also use social engineering with these details to try to manipulate you into skipping normal security protocols. Right, so if you overshare on Facebook or other social media or LinkedIn maybe and you've got a fully public, fully public profile, but also, again, you can get a lot of the same stuff from, you know, public voter records, public property records. Uh, a lot of this information can be found online. And if they get enough information, they can do what's called a spear phishing attack, which is to basically, instead of the regular phishing attack, is you just spray and pray. You send millions of emails out to millions of people and hope that someone's going to bite. Spear phishing is actually someone took the time or perhaps an automated computer system took the time to gather detailed information about you and then sent an email that's much more believable because it has it contains uh, information. And in fact, one of the most insidious forms of that is when they include an old password. Um, and they say, and I've seen a lot of those that say, see this password, recognize it. Yeah, we do too. That means we own you. We've, we, we know everything about you. And that's not true. Um, more than likely, they got that from a password breach, a uh, database breach you know, many years ago. That may actually have been one of your old passwords, hopefully not one of your current passwords. But it seems like something that should be secret. And the fact that they know it, you know, makes you worried. Uh, don't let that worry. All right. Number four, be wary of hyperlinks. Avoid clicking on hyperlinks in emails and hover over links to verify authenticity. Also ensure that URLs begin with HTTPS. The S indicates encryption is enabled to protect users' information. 
honestly, that S is yes. It means it's encrypted. It doesn't mean it's legitimate. So uh, all the S means is, is that it's encrypted. Whatever you send to and from that, you know, that link, that website, no one else can read. But if you're talking to a bad guy, it doesn't matter. So just don't let that little lock icon or that little S on HTTPS let you believe that who you're talking to is legitimate. All right, number five, double your login protection. Enable multi-factor authentication, MFA, to ensure that the only person who has access to your account is you. Use it for email, banking, social media, and any other service that requires logging in. If MFA is an option, also called two-factor authentication, enable it by using a trusted mobile device, such as a smartphone, an authenticator app, or a secure token. And a secure token is a small physical device they can hook onto your keyring. Okay, so two-factor authentication is crucial, especially on all the accounts they, they mentioned. Financial accounts, medical accounts, um, you know, Social Security, IRS, banks, and social media and email. Because with if someone were to gain access to your social media accounts or your email accounts, they could try to reset passwords on your accounts, which, guess what? Those go to your email. Or they could use those accounts to try to trick your friends and relatives, you know, basically go through your contact list and send emails that look like they're, well, they are from you because they hacked your account, you know, asking them to click on a link or open a document and, you know, maybe slip through their radar because they think it's coming from you. I'm, in that case, it actually is coming from you. So uh, it's really important to use that. Um, there's multiple ways to do it. And I just listed three SMS messages is like the, the bare minimum. Like if that's the only option they give you, like regular text messages, uh, that's better than nothing, but much better than that is, is to use an authenticator app like Authy or a Google Authenticator, um, which you synchronize and set up one time. And then from there on out, you've got these little six-digit pins that change every 30 seconds. Uh, and when it when you try to log in from an unrecognized device, something it, it, like it doesn't know, it doesn't recognize you, you're not at home or you're on a different computer, um, it will challenge you for this other thing beside your password. Uh, and that can be a huge, huge difference to your security. The last one there, that token thing they talked about is it's kind of cool. A lot of executives and high profile people use these things, but they're kind of, um, they're kind of inconvenient to use. Basically it's, you, it's a key that a little physical, like a USB flash drive kind of thing that you have to keep with you at all times. Uh, and that's like a, that's where the code comes from. So you basically have to be able to plug that into any computer that you're using, including, you know, a coffee shop or at the library or at a friend's house. You just have to have that with you because if you don't, you can't get that second factor. It's, it is very secure, uh, but it's not very convenient. All right. Two more points. Six, shake up your password protocol. According to NIST guidance, that's the National Institute of Standards and Technology, you should consider using the longest password or passphrase permissible. Get creative and customize your standard password for different sites which can prevent cyber criminals from gaining access to these accounts and protect you in the event of a breach. Use password managers to generate and, rem and remember different complex passwords for each of your accounts. Read the creating a password tip sheet for more information. And I'll put a link in the show notes for this. But if you just go to, if you just search on national cybersecurity awareness month, and uh, it'll take you to the ciasa.gov site. And somewhere in there is the list of their tip sheets. You can find all of these. And finally, seven, install and update antivirus software. Make sure all of your computers, Internet of Things devices, phones, and tablets are, are equipped with regularly updated antivirus software, firewalls, email filters, and anti-spyware. Okay, so we've talked about this before. I'm a little less inclined to do that. There's a lot of these for-pay antivirus software programs that are actually I'm, it's a case where the cure might be worse than the disease. They're, they have a lot of security faults there themselves, which can ironically expose you to attack. And they're also can be privacy nightmares. Uh, they're basically your bodyguard. They have to have full uh, unfettered access to everything that you do. 
And that's a little bit too private for me. Um, so if you follow all the rest of these things and just good cyber hygiene, um, that's really the way to go. If you insist on having this on Microsoft, just use the one that comes with it, Windows Defender. It's quite good. It's free. It's built in. Uh, that's plenty good enough. And the Mac actually has some kind of de you know, defenses built in as well. They're not quite as elaborate as uh, Windows Defender, unfortunately. Uh, but if you really want to do something, then maybe maybe Avira or Sophos, their free home versions uh, would be something you might want to look at. But anyway, uh, that's it. That's the tips of the week. Again, if you go to that website, I'll put it in the show notes. There's a lot more information there, a lot of great resources. You can also get resources from my website. In fact, I, I'll try to put the link to that site on my site. If you go to firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com and look for the resources tab, there's a lot of stuff there that you can find. And I'll try to put this uh, link there as well. All right, real quick, we've got lots, like I said, I've got lots of great interviews in the hopper. Uh, don't want to give too much away just in case for some, <laughs> just in case they don't happen, but next week for sure, it's already in the can of, have recorded it. Just need to edit it. We've talked again with John Graham coming from the, from Cloudflare, great company doing great work. Uh, and they've got some cool new tools we're going to talk about. Uh, I will say that I finally found somebody to talk to about dark patterns and that somebody was from Purdue university. So go boilers, uh, back on my alma mater. I interesting coincidence. I found some people who wrote a, a paper on that and I'm going to get one of those guys on. I will say that I'm pretty sure that's going to happen. Now, I did say I'm looking for feedback, which I am. Now that I'm retired, semi-retired, whatever I'm doing, uh, I'm going to be, I may be shaking things up a little bit. I may change the format. I may add some stuff, may delete some stuff. I'm not sure what I'm going to do yet, but um, it's, I've now got time to to think about these things, actually, and plan some things out. I'm also going to be trying to come up with something really cool to do for the 200th uh, episode. Uh, I'm also trying to find something that I could do for the Patreon, some really valuable service that I could provide that um, would make it worthwhile for people to subscribe and support me that way. So I'm looking for all sorts of ideas. And if you have any, feel free to send them my way. Uh, send them to feedback at firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com. Uh, I believe I have that set up with an autoresponder, so you might get a little canned response to that. Um, I will still look at them, know that I will. But, you know, I'm looking for anything. If you have any ideas about who I might want to interview, what kind of topics to cover, how I might want to alter the show to add something that you've always wanted, or maybe tell me about parts of the show that, that you'd rather skip. If you have any particular ideas about something that would be really cool to do, some sort of a contest or some sort of giveaway or something that we could do for the 200th episode, I'd love to hear that. And just generally speaking, if there's something you think I could add to my repertoire of privacy and security tools or training, uh, let me know. I'd be very glad to hear your input. Again, that's feedback at firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com. All right, that's going to do it for this week, everybody. Get out there and vote. Get out there and vote if you haven't already. Do it safely. Do it remotely if necessary. Uh, do it early if possible. But get out there and vote and you know, take four people with you. We're coming up in flu season here. We're all starting to go inside. So it's really super, super important now that we all wear our masks and avoid large gatherings where we can, certainly indoor gatherings. Man, Thanksgiving and Christmas this year are going to be kind of scary. I don't know what we're going to do. But please make plans now. Think about how you might want to social distance at these events, how you might want to quarantine prior to these events and get tested prior to these events. You know, limit your interactions as much as possible, or we could see a huge spike, and we don't want that. So, as usual, everybody, stay safe out there. And until next week, don't get caught with your drawbridge down. <laughs>